Welcome to Navigating Your Child's Education, a podcast for parents, grandparents, and anyone raising or influencing young people. I'm your host, Laura. On today's episode, we'll be discussing one of the most common childhood disorders, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, an estimated 6.4 million children in the U.S. have been diagnosed with ADHD, and these numbers are on the increase. With us today, we have three experts in this field who work with students and young people on a daily basis. First, I'd like to introduce Caitlin Geisler. Caitlin, tell us a little bit about yourself. I have been working as an intervention specialist for the past nine years. Uh, I have worked with students in elementary school starting in fourth grade um, all the way through ninth grade students. So currently I work with seventh, eighth and ninth graders. Next, we have Sam Lehman. Sam, tell us a little bit about your work. I am a school psychologist and an ADHD psychoeducational specialist and family consultant. So in the school setting, I complete evaluations for special education. And then in the private setting, I work with families and students to help understand ADHD and kind of monitor um, and treat at home. Our third guest with us today is Dr. Dale Richards. Dr. Richards, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a child psychiatrist in private practice for over 20 years. So as a child psychiatrist, um, we treat an awful lot of kids with ADHD plus other things, the things that are likely to be what we call comorbid with ADHD. I'll direct this to Dr. Richards. What is ADHD and what is it not? ADHD is a neurodevelopmental condition, so for the most part, it's a condition that's present from a young age onward, and for many people into adulthood, probably close to 60%, maybe more. And it is a condition where people have inattention and or hyperactivity and impulsivity to a degree that it's persistent, present in more than one setting. So not just at home, not just at school or at church or something like that. And it interferes with functioning. So all people, kids especially, can be prone to being off task or having difficulty attending to tasks that may not be very interesting. And especially when something's boring, sitting still or even waiting their turn. But if those are patterns of behavior that are persistent and consistent generally, and get to the point where they're interfering with life, whether that's academic life or especially interpersonal life, then we're more likely looking at a condition that we call ADHD. I used to, we used to use the term ADD very often. I feel like when I was younger growing up, that's what we heard. It was attention deficit disorder, but it's my understanding that that term is no longer used. Is that correct? Right. Back in the 80s with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 3, they basically had it divided into ADD, so inattention without hyperactivity and impulsivity, and ADHD. As time progressed in in the 1990s, we realized that this was the same condition. The umbrella is ADHD with different subtypes. So the inattentive subtype where you don't have a prominence of hyperactive and impulsive symptoms, the combined subtype, which is the most common form that we see in clinical 
situations and the hyperactive and impulsive subtype, which is seemingly pretty rare uh, if it exists at all. That, but that's my personal <laughs> that's my personal view. Sam, in your work with young people and families who are dealing with ADHD, what do you see as the primary symptoms that distinguish each of those three types of ADHD? So the hyperactive type is kind of stereotypically the kid that has difficulty sitting still more versus the inattentive type is someone that can have difficulty paying attention and that can be kind of in any subject, even if it is a subject or an area or a task that they enjoy, it's still going to be difficult. And then the combined would be obviously kind of both intermixed and there's not one that seems to be more prevalent than the other. In my work, I guess, typically I see more of the inattentive type kids having difficulty paying attention. And it can be something as simple as not paying attention on this field when you're playing sports, when the coach is giving instructions, they're not able to follow through with that. And also in the classroom, if the, if the teacher is giving out math instructions or a math worksheet to complete, they don't necessarily complete it all or they don't necessarily turn it in. Um, just kind of missing those executive functioning type skills. How do you distinguish age-typical or age-appropriate behavior from behavior that would fall into the category of a disorder? Well, I think that it all boils down to dysfunction. Um, Like I said, these behaviors that are defined as ADHD are on the spectrum of normal human experiences or behaviors. But if you have all of these symptoms together or much of them and they're persistent and causing great difficulty for the student or the parent, or especially most commonly both, then we may be looking at a a problem and a diagnosable condition like ADHD. So I think that's the key element is persistence and also the interfering with functioning or the distress that it causes. I recently read statistics that children as young as two are being diagnosed with ADHD. I think the youngest age bracket being maybe two to five-year-olds, and that represents hundreds of thousands of ADHD diagnoses. How exactly does that work when you are working with a two-year-old? I'm not sure myself. Um, I think it would be very, very difficult to pin a diagnosis of ADHD on someone that young. Now, when someone is approaching school age or if someone's in a structured setting like a daycare where they're with other children that same age and you've got teachers who've got a lot of experience working with young people, there may be those kids that stand out because of their level of great difficulty with impulse control and especially regulating emotions and temper. So... Unfortunately, those kids that are identified at a much younger age, probably the condition is much more severe and probably going to be more persistent. So age two, three, that would be a stretch um, to pin a diagnosis on someone at that age. Five-year-old, six-year-old, probably a little bit easier because you've got more collateral sources. You got parents, you've got parents' friends and families that have interacted with the child. And what I rely on a great deal are those people in the educational setting who know what 
the average five or six-year-old looks like. Do you work with a lot of parents that have ADHD and you see that like they're kind of dealing with as a family? ADHD is an extraordinarily heritable condition. It's probably just a few notches below height in terms of family transmissibility. So it's not unusual, in fact, expected that when you're evaluating a child who has ADHD, oftentimes a parent in the consultation will have ADHD or had been identified or treated for ADHD. And you know what? That has challenges because if one of the home-based strategies that you're trying to enforce is having predictability and structure and the primary caretaker may have a lot of ADHD and difficulty organizing and planning, it creates problems. Even following through an appointments can be difficult because of this family-based condition. I remember seeing a study recently also pointing out that siblings of individuals with ADHD are much, much more likely not just to have ADHD, but sub-syndromal uh, sub symptoms. So in other words, enough symptoms that they may not reach criteria, full criteria for a diagnosis, but interfere with functioning enough that they're causing friction, causing difficulties making life a little bit harder. So you're basically talking about an increased burden on these caretakers that's pretty high. I can remember my parents saying when I was younger, and I think I've heard a similar sentiment echoed as I've grown up, that ADHD in the U.S. is overdiagnosed and overmedicated. Would you agree that it is overdiagnosed? Well, I think there's that perception, but the reality is, and we've got studies um, that demonstrate this uh, rather specifically, that in fact, it's underdiagnosed and many cases are missed. And that's not just in the United States, but also in Europe and in uh, South America, where some of these studies have been done. Um, are there, though, situations where individuals may be diagnosed and treated who may not have ADHD, you know, certainly I, you know, that's, uh, I would be naive if I didn't um, accept that. But I would like to think that most clinicians who are taking care of children are being thorough, being cautious and prudent and uh, diagnosing and initiating treatment where they're seeing uh, distress. Do you think that an increase in screen time is contributing in any way to an increase in um, ADHD diagnoses? I don't know. I mean, in a situation like that, I wonder about association versus causation. In other words, is there something about these children having ADHD or families managing these children with ADHD? that result in them being more likely to have more time on screens or on the television or seeking out something stimulating. Um, I don't know necessarily if we're at a point where we can say a high level of screen time results in the condition we know as ADHD. Uh, perhaps maybe it might lead to someone being uh, more in need of more stimulation but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the diagnosable condition of ADHD. So obviously since last March, 
schooling and home life have looked much, much different. Many of us have been home more. Many students are doing all of their schooling virtually. For those students with whom you work that have ADHD and their families, how are you seeing that impact them? When I work with families in person, so pre-COVID, I think it's way easier to get their attention and buy-in and kind of what you're talking about. And you can also see kind of that nonverbal understanding and they can um, follow what you're saying more, I think, when you're in person versus COVID and teletherapy. I think it's a little bit trickier. I mean, just adding in technology into the piece, uh, into the mix is also just an added hurdle sometimes. Sometimes internet's shoddy, which just, then they just can't hear half of what you're saying sometimes. Um, From a treatment perspective, I find that I have to use way more visuals in a teletherapy version. So COVID times versus in-person actual sessions. Caitlin, you work directly with students every day in a school setting. How have you seen this impact your students? I think uh, I agree with Sam and that FaceTime is really crucial um, because you're able to, you know, they're able to see like, okay, yes, this really matters. Um, When we have been online for school, um, there's definitely a lack of structure and there's um, sort of a requirement that students create their own structure and routine. Um, And especially for students who have parents who also have those executive functioning, you know, sort of planning and organizational issues, that can be tough. Um, And so when we've moved into a more synchronous form of online learning where the teacher is educating and there's a specific time um, that they need to be online to be working, uh, students have expressed to me how much better that is for them because they know when they need to be accountable and they can kind of make sure that they're turning it on and really trying their hardest to focus during that time. Um, When we were asynchronous and teachers were just posting assignments and available for uh, online hours, students didn't necessarily recognize when they needed the help. And because they have um, those poor planning issues, um, oftentimes I would get messages from kids after 10 p.m. And I personally am sleeping after 10 p.m., but because that they did not plan out their schedule and when they were going to get things done, then they weren't able to access the resources that were available to them. Sam and Caitlin, you've both mentioned executive functioning skills, and I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that. Can you, Sam, can you tell us just basically what are those executive functioning skills? So I think of executive functioning as planning and organization skills, kind of like what Caitlin has mentioned, Um, basically those day-to-day tasks. So if you think of like work skills, things that you need to be able to follow deadlines, be able to make sure you're turning things in on time being able to work collaboratively with others in an appropriate way and make sure that you can kind of divvy up different roles if need be. Uh, basically just kind of some of those things that come very naturally to other people. And then when they don't come very naturally, it that's when you start to see those missing assignments, those tests that the kids forgot to study for because they thought it was two weeks from now. Um, kind of basically a, a planner is executive function is how I look at it. I think executive functioning in the school setting has a lot to do with that um, organization and planning, but I think it also has to do with self-control in terms like, 
of emotions. And so especially with COVID, that's been difficult for students because they don't necessarily know how to express themselves and how they're feeling. And so then that can result in a lot of missing assignments or just radio silence from kids uh, when we're expecting them to perform. I am interrupting this episode for a quick announcement. One of the most important decisions we make as parents is where to send our kids to school. When we think about how many hours a day our kids are at school, there's no denying the fact that it has a profound influence on who they are. Get to know more about Worthington Christian School by downloading our free 24-page viewbook. Visit worthingtonchristian.com forward slash explore WC. Again, it's worthingtonchristian.com forward slash explore WC. Now back to our show. I read that almost two thirds of young people with an ADHD diagnosis have comorbidities. This could look like behavior issues. It could look like anxiety, depression. There's also a high rate of learning disorders that seem to go sort of hand in hand with ADHD. How do you differentiate something like ADHD from anxiety? How do you pull those apart? Or is it necessary to pull those apart to really help a child and support a child? You're right. I mean, I think some studies show 73, 80% of individuals with ADHD have some other simultaneous struggle, whether it be a learning problem issue, which is probably more the most common, to depression, anxiety disorders, other disruptive behavior problems like conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, Tourette's disorder, for instance. I think that the first thing to do is maybe move away from thinking parsimoniously and sort of thinking it's not necessarily either or, but probably both. And then doing our best to partition out. And again, it's just judgment and experience. What are those symptoms that are clustered together that are more likely part of the ADHD diagnosis versus those that are outliers that aren't typical for ADHD? And then seeing if they cluster together to define a depressive condition or an anxiety disorder. And that's, that's the best way I can explain it. Could it look like a child has ADHD or depression or anxiety, but it's actually a temporary thing, not this like, not a disorder that we are ascribing to you for the rest of your life? Well, as we talked about, the, by definition, ADHD has to be present continuously in some form for a stretch of time. You know, it used to be that in order to meet criteria, it had to be present from at least at or before the age of six. Um, now that's changed to the age of 12 um, recently, but it speaks to the fact that this is something that is present persistently for some time. Um, same thing with an anxiety disorder. We're going to have individuals who get anxious, get anxiety from a particular stressor or something upcoming. But in order to be a disorder, it has to have some persistence and also has to be at a level where it's interfering with their functioning. Are they not able to concentrate in school? Are they not able to be in the moment in their play with peers? 
or are they having difficulty with managing and regulating their temper and behavior with parents? I think that's when you start sort of ticking off more boxes to say, okay, this may be a disorder and warrants treatment. I would love for you three to walk me through that process a little bit. Let's say I'm a concerned parent. I have a young child. I'm sensing that there is a pattern in behavior that feels um, disordered. It feels disruptive. It feels like my child is not thriving. Where should I go first with my concern? So I think there's a few different routes you can take. I think you can either go to your pediatrician or find a private doctor to potentially diagnose and then also potentially treat if medication is a choice um, that you decide to go down that route. Um, or you can go through the school system. So if you go through the school system, you will not get a medical or a clinical diagnosis, but you could potentially receive some type of intervention or support in the school setting for symptoms related to ADHD, but the school will not give you an official diagnosis. If that's what you're going for, you need to go to a private uh, provider. And I think it's possible um, for you to go to your doctor and then take those results to the school for them to collaborate a little bit and vice versa. You could get an educational diagnosis of ADHD, but then take those um, results to your medical doctor if you are looking to pursue a medical diagnosis and or medication. And I think it's important to, if you're coming into that situation, to make sure you are communicating to both parties. So making sure you're communicating to your pediatrician and in the schools so that everyone's on the same page and that even if there is a treatment being put forth, that everyone understands what's going on and can kind of make sure that everyone's monitoring, but also that everyone's supporting them in like similar sorts of ways, um, just so everything's consistent across the board, I think is key. You've mentioned treatment being both behavioral and potentially medicated. Perhaps there could be some counseling involved with that. What do you say to parents that feel a sense of hesitation about medicating their child or some of these other interventions that might be available to them once they receive an ADHD diagnosis? I empathize with them. I, I know that that's a tough decision to make to start a seemingly you know otherwise healthy child on medication. But, you know, we have to talk about if they are experiencing this condition and it's interfering with their life and has consequences, albeit, you know, down the road maybe, but in the short term, academic failure, job failure, relationship failure, and increased risk for substance dependence, we're not talking about a benign condition. So I like to point out that we have to understand what could happen if we don't treat this condition. And again, if the condition is significant enough that medication is warranted, um, what's the balance between what happens if we don't treat versus if we treat? Now, we're fortunate that ADHD is the most studied medical condition in childhood. The medications that we use to treat ADHD are also the most studied treatment we have for any condition in, in childhood. So we know an awful lot about what are the benefits versus what the side effects are. So I feel comfortable having all of that information to share with them so that parents can make an informed, educated decision about what they want to do with medication. What is it that parents don't know about ADHD? I don't think 
parents necessarily always understand that kids can have a diagnosis of ADHD and not require accommodations in the classroom. I think sometimes parents assume with a diagnosis that means they need assistance in the school setting, but a lot of times medication can be enough to manage those symptoms. And with some other like interventions that don't include special education or like a Section 504 plan, they can progress appropriately. ADHD is not necessarily something that can be fixed. Um, it's something that we learn to cope with or a student learns to cope with um, and develop strategies to help themselves become more successful versus, oh, I'll take this medicine and everything's better or oh, I'll meet with my teacher every day. And now I, I get all A's. Like it's, it's a complicated thing. And as Dr. Richards pointed out, it's something that will continue with you for the rest of your life. And so there are adults with ADHD that are very functional because they were able to develop those cope, develop and practice those coping skills as a younger person. One of the major and common things that I see in my practice is so many times parents and even teachers uh, who are parents of children that I'm seeing for evaluation define ADHD as a condition of school or academics. So they, I think, falsely feel like that, well, if my child who has this history of hyperactivity and impulsivity as a child has and continues to do okay in school, they must not have the condition ADHD. And that's not true. What we don't often identify as parents is the amount of energy and uh, resources these kids have to pull together to do as well as they're doing. I often see kids who are really anxiously disposed being the very good students who have ADHD in spades, but that anxiety keeps it in check. So these kids are getting a double dose of yuck. You know, all this anxious distress that they have to deal with day in and day out. And by the way, executive functioning difficulties that make school hard. We have to understand that probably the most toxic element of ADHD is the psychosocial impact. What it does to a person's sense of self over years of being a day late and a dollar short, letting people down, forgetting something again leaving something behind, not doing as well as they know they can do on tests, and having parents continuously frustrated with them as a result. Unfortunately, I've seen over the years adults who've had ADHD, not diagnosed, not treated, who've developed this pervasive negative view of the world. They just see themselves always as the victim because of how awful their experience has been. So, I like to think that the earlier we can identify these kids, the better. Is that a significant part of what you specifically work on with students? It is. I think sometimes it can feel like a losing battle because one day things will be going really well. Students are using coping strategies and then the next day they come and everything implodes and you're like, what? <laughs> you were doing so well before, but we have to remember that that's also part of being human. <laughs> and just making sure that we continue to support them in the best way possible. I think a lot of repetition with those coping strategies is super important. Strategies that you teach in elementary school are also just as valid in middle school and high school, and they need to be repeated and practiced over and over. Kind of going off of what both of you have said, 
I think early intervention by intervention, I could mean medication support kind of learning those skills early on is obviously going to be something that can help in the future. But first, you have to be identified. So kind of making sure you communicate with schools and doctors to figure out what's going on and then take the next steps of, okay, so what does that mean now? Does that mean I need to have timers setting out when they're working on their homework? Does that mean I need to make sure there's a checklist handy? Does that mean I need to talk with the school about possibly getting them on some type of program? It's important to have that discussion and have it be a team approach where everybody's putting their heads together because teachers are going to see different sides of the students than the family's going to see at home. And same with doctors. Everybody's going to see a different side of the student and being able to communicate and express those things so that they can best serve the child, I think is important. Some of my most successful students who have ADHD um, have really supportive um, and communicative parents at home willing to, you know, talk about, oh, how was today or how was this week or letting us know when they're having a medication check um, so that we then they are able to communicate with their doctors to just to make sure that everything stays even keel and going moving more in a productive direction. Caitlin, how do you balance supporting your students with teaching them the skills to begin to support themselves? And how important is self-advocacy? Self-advocacy is one of my main goals as a teacher for my students, um, especially being in the middle grades and then the upper grades. Um, It's super important that students are able to explain how their ADHD affects them in the classroom, at work, with their parents, with their siblings, and learn um, ways to cope with that in those different settings. Um, One of my favorite things to tell kids is, I'm not going to college with you. I mean, I follow them through several years of their school experience, but I'm not I'm not going to go to college with you. So it's your job to learn how to um, advocate for yourself and let other people know the things that you need, because as they do that more and more, they realize that most people are very happy to support students in the way that they need to be supported and are more than willing um, to make accommodations in order for the student to feel successful. And it's always exciting to be able to see or hear that students have done that even without first coming to talk to me. You know, in the beginning, it's like, well, can you come with me to go talk to that one teacher? Yes, I'm happy to do that. But eventually, as they get older, they start to feel more confident in their ability to explain the things that they need. And that's the most exciting thing, I think, to see. Seeing those kids that have started early on with the support of teachers who are helping them to self-advocate and practice those skills like having a checklist, having um, a plan or having a calendar, uh, setting limits, for instance, often helps them so much when they move on from high school to college. Nowadays, we have lots of colleges that are offering support for children who have other learning styles, as well as ADHD, including having the availability of getting written notes that are produced in the classroom, having individuals that they can go to on the college campus to get support. And those kids who've learned to advocate for themselves go and take advantage of those things and do quite well because they often don't think about the fact that when they're not at home, they're going to have to plan in their schedule when they do their laundry. 
when they eat, even when they're going to entertain themselves. All of that has to be taken into account. So the more they can practice managing their daily schedule and routine, the better off they are when they go off to college. Dr. Richards, Caitlin, Sam, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your experience with supporting families and students with ADHD. Fellow parents, thank you for joining us today in our conversation on ADHD. I've learned a lot and I hope you did too. A new episode of the Navigating Your Child's Education podcast is published on the first and third Wednesday of each month. Make sure to subscribe and the latest episode will automatically show up in your preferred podcast library.